Welcome to Video Star. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1968 Stanley Kubrick classic 2001 A Space Odyssey. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Star. Baird, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Thanks. Well, Barrett, I am on record from episode one of this podcast that this is one of my all-time favorite movies. So I feel like in the last few weeks, you've served served me up a couple things that uh, are right in my wheelhouse. So I am very excited to talk about this. Uh, but let's start with a little bit of history. What is your history with this film? Well, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time remembering the, f- I, the first time I saw it, but I suspect because I, I, I feel like I knew the film already, but my most vivid memory of it is um, uh, I'm assuming it was a 10 year re-release. I actually found a poster in Japan for a 1978 re-release. So I'm thinking that I'm I'm right in remembering that because I was in college and um, saw it on a big screen. I think it might've even been a 70 millimeter projection. Um, So that was was in 1978. And that was definitely the first time I remember seeing it in a theater. Whether I had seen it before in a different theater, I don't know, but I certainly knew about it, and that was uh, that was the most striking experience for me. Do you remember your Do you remember your experience of seeing it beyond beyond the fact that you saw it? Yeah, um, and, and and funny, funnily enough, the, the the part of the of the experience I remember most vividly would be the Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite. Um, well, I, there's that and also the opening, um, you know, the, the opening with the ape man, I feel like when I watched it again this time, I had, I remembered almost every step of that opening. And, and then of course, um, Dave's conversations with Hal, but I think the thing I walked out of the theater with probably in 1978 was the, 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 the trip through the Stargate, um, you know, cause it goes on for, for quite a long time. And, um, it was really my first experience of what you might call kind of non-narrative cinema, you know that's it's it's what Kubrick does there has been compared to uh, to people who do non-narrative cinema. So I think just visually that was so uh, so powerful and so confusing. Um, I didn't really fully understand what was happening. Yeah, I mean, this is a lot of people point to this as sort of the biggest experimental film ever. I mean, that that it is. It both has a narrative, but it's also. Kubrick is not particularly interested in explaining this movie to you. Um, and, and in interviews, he's basically said that at the same time in other interviews, he's like, yeah, it is the thing people say it like it, he's also not like mysterious about it at the same time. But then there are long stretches where he's interested in doing something other than um, what you might think of in a commercial film. While this is still a wildly, especially eventually a wildly successful commercial film, this is the most, I think, eventually the most commercially successful film of 1968. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, so, so it, it 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 walks an interesting line there. I will say my experience watching this is, as it turns out, extremely typical of people my age, which is, I saw this movie, um shown to me by an older adult who was very excited to show it to young to sort of the next generation and showed it to us probably a little bit too young and not too young in that there's anything scandalous about this but in terms of what is the right age to get your head around what is happening in this movie so i was shown this by my sixth grade teacher um for he who was both my sixth grade homeroom teacher but also a science teacher and it was clear as I look back on it, he just loved this movie so much. Mr. Beatty was his name. He loved this movie so much, and he just wanted to share this with his, um, 
with his sixth grade class. And, you know, home video was relatively new still at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was, so we spent two or three days cause we watched it in chunks. Um, and I, my, my big takeaway is that I remember the sort of centrifuge idea of the mm-hmm. discovery and of the, the big kind of wagon wheel um, space station. Cause I remember him explaining why it was spinning and he was mm-hmm. talking about how it would create artificial gravity. So clearly he was like kind of geeking out on the, the science of it and wanting to show us that. Um, and then I remember that the end was so deeply strange. And mm-hmm. as a, as a sixth grader, like I don't think he tried to even explain it to us. He just sort of left it there. And so I had, I probably didn't really think much about the movie uh, after that, but clearly it sort of stayed with me because I did not watch it again until probably 2013 or 14. And there were just images from the movie that stayed in my head. And I watched it then um, it was on a summer night. Everybody else was up at the cabin and I was home because I had to work and I watched it and I watched it late at night. And I just remember thinking this is instantly it became one of my favorite movies. And I thought it was so mesmerizing and haunting and beautiful and scary in ways. And I just I remember getting to the end in the um, whatever that hotel room human zoo thing is and seeing the different versions of of Bowman and and being as a, you know, 35 year old adult adult genuinely terrified by this movie. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very unsettling film, and you know, part of the, that's part of what Kubrick is going for. He, even though it's interesting, he has been willing in interviews to kind of um, expand upon or provide kind of background, and partly he kind of has to do that in a way because Arthur C. Clarke did his own thing with the two thousand and one novelization, but mostly he talks about the fact that he wants the film to have to work on. Um, the audience, uh, he talks about kind of a, a visceral effect, which is kind of what you've described, Sam. Uh, he wants an emotional effect. Um, it, it, it's interesting because we, I tend to think of Kubrick as this kind of very intellectual filmmaker, very kind of, you know, cold filmmaker, but that's not the way he thinks about this film in terms of what he wants it to do for the audience. It's almost as though he wants it to work at a, like he says, like a, at a subconscious level. And so if it has that effect, that's, that's exactly what he's going for. And, and I agree, for me, it's, it's both Bowman um, in the room seeing himself at different stages of, of his life, but it's also, you know, what, the, what do you make of the fetus that seems to be larger than the earth? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I never understand, I don't know if I still understand that. I mean, is it, is it just a superimposition or is it really a baby as big as, the, as a planet? Um, and, I, and there's not, there's not supposed to be, I don't think, any one answer to that. That's where, that's where you can then kind of allegorize or interpret the film to mean a number of, of different things, um, you know. But anyway, so I, it's, it's fascinating to me that Kubrick is both loquacious about the meaning of the film, but for me, even though I've read some of those interviews, it's a really fine, really long interview he did in Playboy magazine in the, in the uh, fall of 1968, which has been anthologized. 
Um, even after reading what he says, I still feel like it's okay. I can still watch the movie and I can still kind of make it my own experience. Yeah. So, so in preparation for this, I reread what is it? If anyone's interested in this book, especially in the, the store or not this book in this, um, in this film, uh, especially about the production of the film, the writing of it, and and sort of the the hows of this movie, which I will say, dude, does not spoil it visually at all. In fact, it makes it richer to realize the amazing uh, links they went to. Uh, Michael Benson wrote a book called Space Odyssey, I think in 2018. I think it was like a 50th anniversary. That is uh, an exhaustive walk through the production of this movie. So I reread that this weekend. And then I also, for the first time, read the Arthur Clarke book. Um, and I actually want to talk about this because this is the most interesting version of adaptation I think I've ever encountered because the origins of this movie. So Kubrick is coming off of strange love. And we should probably talk about how, you know, if you think about a director's career, you know, if a move, if each movie is sort of potentially a response to the movie before it, this is a really interesting follow-up to Strange Love. Um, but he wanted to make um, the the classic line is he wanted to make the proverbial really good sci-fi movie, um, and he kept going to people saying like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know who I should work with on this. And it's funny because everybody wanted him. Everybody said, well, just go to Arthur Clarke. He's the best science fiction writer. And Kubrick was reluctant because um, because Clarke was living in uh, Ceylon or modern day Sri Lanka. Um, and, and Kubrick literally thought like he was living out in the jungle and was like, this guy's too weird to work with. And it's actually the jazz clarinetist Artie Shaw who convinces Kubrick, like, no, who was also a big sci-fi buff, who convinced him, no, this is the guy. Um, so they they sat down to start to write this and they were working from about six Clark short stories. The Sentinel is, is the one that has sort of the monolith thing in it. And um, Clark did not know how to write a screenplay and was very frustrated trying to write a screenplay. So Kubrick said, okay, don't worry about that. Let's just write this in prose. Let's write a novel. So the novel was written so that it could be a movie, but it was also written at the same time the movie was being made. So they kept communicating back and forth as both of these things were progressing. So he's adapting a novel as it's being written. And in part, he, he Clark writes the novel and it is it is eventually attributed only to Clark, but Kubrick has so much input into where that novel goes to the point where uh, Clark keeps writing back to Kubrick and saying like, "You've got to tell me, you've got to make decisions about the movie because I have to write this, write the novelization of it." So it's the strangest story for how you adapt something, and it also means then the relationship between the book and the movie is so fascinating because mm-hmm. the book doesn't require the movie, the movie doesn't require the book. But they exist in an interesting relationship with each other where the Clark is far more interested in explaining what is happening. So it's fa- it, I'm really glad that I only read this book after seeing 2001 seven or eight times. So it's like I have the movie experience and now I have like, OK, this is Clark and probably Clark and Kubrick fleshing this out. But then when Kubrick makes the movie, he wants to do something entirely different. And, and and uh listeners might like to know it, it is because of the novel that you actually have, for example, a name given to the ape man that discovers how to use the bone, right? He's mm-hmm. Moonwatcher. Uh, and we know that from the novel. Um and you know, Clark retains the original destination, which is Saturn, 
Um, but well, actually, okay, that's actually interesting because the original destination was Jupiter, and then Kubrick, partway through the movie, got obsessed with Saturn and said oh, okay. to all his production people, "Well, can we make it Saturn?" And they were oh, like, "And they, and they you know how hard it would be to make Saturn." So they <laughs> they actually Kubrick. This is also a movie where Kubrick keeps changing and pushing the people mm. working with him, and that's one where they put their foot down and said, okay. "We're too deep in." <laughs> and they, yeah, but my understanding also was that they they. They didn't think they could possibly do the, do justice to the rings. That's exactly so, it. Yeah, yeah they were yeah, like, "We yeah. can't do that." Well, no, I, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, the uh, the script goes through. Uh, you know, there's not only the novel, but the script goes through two or three or four different uh, permutations, and and then some of the things that Kubrick does, um, almost at the last minute, he originally had a, a very long voiceover prologue which was also very explanatory. Mm -hmm. um, and then he, he cut 19 minutes from the premiere uh, as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's so typical Kubrick because on the one hand, he's this obsessive planner, but on the other hand, he actually is, um, uh, he's a great reviser at the, at the same time. And, it, and it's amazing as it seems like every choice, and I don't think it's just because we like what he ended up with, but every choice just seems to me to be a good decision to, and it's almost always a decision about, you know, what, what should I take out? So, mm -hmm. you know, famously in strange love, he takes out a climactic uh, pie fight. Um, and, and here I, I think taking out the voiceover, uh, taking out the, uh, the scientific explanation is, is really important move. Well, and I think to your point, you talked about him wanting to make this a visceral experience. He also talks about it as saying, I want this movie to be a visual experience. Yes, yes. And that's part of because because the because Clark had written voiceover for the in not only for the for like a preamble, but for the whole movie. Mm -hmm. And actually, Douglas Rain, mm -hmm. the person who voices Hal, was supposed to be was originally hired to be the voice, the voiceover person. And then he gets repurposed as well. We like him. We like this guy. He's going to be Hal. Um, but 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 that and that's pretty late in the movie that they that they take that that voiceover out. Well, um, actually, that's 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 another connection to her because um, you know in her it was Samantha Morton as her, and then they changed to um, uh, Charlotte Johansson. Martin Balsam was Hal, mm -hmm. uh, and then Kubrick just. There was something about that accent, that particular American accent, that Kubrick didn't like. Douglas Rain is Canadian, uh, and for some reason, he liked that voice better. So they had, so they had to replace all of Martin Balsam's uh, Hal voice work with with Douglas Rain's. Well, and I think that's, I think it's part of the, the, this sort of move to creating a pure, like as pure as possible, a visual film. Uh, if we're thinking about this as a follow-up to Strange Love, when I think about Strange Love, it's such a talky movie. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so much about uh, Peter Sellers is so funny in that, and there's so much about what they are saying that is conveying the things of this movie. So it's interesting that his next film is like, what if we made as close to a dialogue-free movie as we could? Because actually, even the dialogue that exists, there's very little that that deeply matters in terms of what people are saying. Cause some of it, you know, some of it is uh, uh, necessary to push some things forward, but, but the, the real experience stuff happens in dialogue free moments. So for example, this movie starts, I think the first line of dialogue is almost 26 minutes into the film. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the, the whole, 
sort of dawn of man sequence but even after that all of the stuff about floyd getting to the he it's the floyd taking the pan am shuttle to to the space station you know with blue danube playing like there is nothing said until he gets off the elevator until he yeah he's on the elevator at the space station and then the final 25 minutes of the movie are also completely dialogue free and even in the middle there are long chunks that are you're watching people do process things, but there's a there's a lot of non talking in it as well. Yeah, and and the dialogue just seems to fall into kind of two categories. You have um, you have that which is I, I guess you could call it sort of expository. So mm-hmm. the conversation between uh, with the Russians, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, you B- have... the BBC thing was is also just an oh yeah that's right yeah, the yes. BBC thing that's that, that's right and then um, the obviously the the dialogue between uh, between Hal and Dave um, which is really interesting because on one level it's I mean most of the, most of the dialogue is kind of banal I mean mm-hmm. it's and and yet what I love about that dialogue between Dave and Hal is everything is going on and nothing's being said. Mm-hmm. Um, everything's completely below the surface. It's, somebody pointed out that it's like Kira Dooley is acting through his eyes as he as he interacts with Hal. So what they're saying is not so much important as what they're what they're implying. But otherwise, I, I, Kubrick says there's like 40 minutes of dialogue in the whole film. I don't think there's even that much necessarily. But um, yeah, it doesn't it, it doesn't need any more dialogue than it has for sure. Well, and one of the great things is that the most plot driven conversation he even plays with this idea of sound and not sound because it's when they're in the pod talking and the whole idea is Hal can't hear them but Hal Hal is reading their lips so even part of that scene we see through Hal's eyes where we don't actually get to hear what they're saying we've heard the lead up to it but so yeah he's definitely playing with that Um, one of the interesting in terms of thinking about this as a visual film one of my favorite quotes from Kubrick as he was talking with his production crew about this movie. And I think this is, I assume this is a Kubrick mantra beyond 2001, but um, when he was talking about sequences in the film, he said, there's three questions you have to ask yourself. Is it interesting? Is it believable? And is it beautiful or aesthetically superior? And he says, at least two of the three need to be in every shot of the film. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you think about this movie, that lines up that, 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 that if you, if you ask yourself, why am I watching this? If you go back to those questions, anything that happens on the screen, you're getting at least two of those at any moment in the film. And when you think about the fact that everything that he did in, in typical Krubik fashion, he he had he worked with uh, with others to create new technical effects like um, front screen projection and what they called a slit screen for the effect of the gate. Um, he does all this without CGI. Mm hmm. And so, you know, in, in a way, it's it's almost like because this is just on the cusp of, you know, computer animation coming in, uh, in, a, in a way, it's like maybe the pinnacle of technical achievement in terms of representing these these spaces um, as as appearing to be what really is look, what space really looks like mm-hmm. um, and what a what a spacecraft looks like in in space. So it's really astonishing from that respect. I think it's one of the reasons why the film really doesn't age, you know? I mean, it, 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 it strikes me that it's as, it's as fresh and as interesting. It's, it's not like you look at it and say, oh, there is a, there's a clunky special effect. It doesn't strike you that way at all. 
Yeah, it's interesting because that was one of my takeaways when I when I revisited this movie in the early teens was um, I was like, wow, this is 1968. And, and I knew enough then to be like, well, this is nine years before Star Wars, right? Um, so this, this is a, a full decade before that. And it's like, and this is before the moon landing. And and you watch it and think, well, the only way to make this is to go to space. Like, I, like it just, I, I, I can't imagine what it must have felt like to live in a world where this movie didn't exist and then to walk into a theater in 1968 and see this projected on a huge screen. Like, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know that it, it's probably the, if I could pick one movie experience to be like, I wish I could have been there for that and not known what I was going to see. It's probably this. I just, I just can't imagine what that must've been like. But, but what's interesting though, is the way that the film divided critics in the beginning. It's not like it burst onto the scene and everybody hailed it as a masterpiece. You know, right. in fact, the four of the major New York critics all panned it. Um, Pauline Kale was probably most vicious about it. Um, uh, Andrew Saris didn't like it, although he then revised his opinion uh, not long afterwards. But a lot of them just found it boring or pretentious. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's as though they couldn't really embrace the experience. And it was in a part because of younger audiences that really started flocking to it that then made it kind of a huge, a huge hit. So it's not like... You know, it, 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 it's, it, it's interesting that sometimes a film like this that is now a classic um, took a little bit of time to kind of build that reputation. Yeah, you know, and, and it, it reminds me, and there are certain filmmakers like this, I think Paul Thomas Anderson is a little like this, where when he puts out movies, they feel like they're outside of time in terms of the the movie, like the, the film landscape of what's being made. And then he'll, you know, uh, PTA will show up with, well, here's my movie. And it's like, it's, isn't necessarily feels like it's related to other things happening. And Kubrick feels a little bit like that sometimes too. Like, and that, that might've been uh, that. I mean, at the same time, he feels really tapped into what's happening. If you think about what strange love is doing in 64, what this is doing in 1960, like this actually feels tapped in. I'm, I'm refuting myself here. It feels tapped into the zeitgeist of like what's happening in, I mean, we're a year away from the moon landing and so it seems like this should be right up the alley of where people are at, but Kubrick's interested in some things uh, maybe beyond those as well. Well, you know, the same year of, of 2001, and I don't know if this is a movie that you uh, have heard of or seen, Sam, but same years uh, as 2001, uh, a movie called Marooned comes out. Hmm. Um, and I have a very vivid memory of seeing Marooned in, in a theater, and it's a story of astronauts on the way to the moon who have a, it's almost like an Apollo 13 uh, foreshadowing uh, and they become marooned in space. Uh, and I don't know exactly when it came out that year in relation to 2001 coming out in April, but it certainly was kind of part of that, that, that zeitgeist uh, at the time. One of the things though that I wanna say about Kubrick that I've always found fascinating is um, Kubrick, and this goes back to the to what you were saying earlier about the three questions he asked the he asked the crew to ask themselves. That Kubrick has this art house sensibility, but he always craved and expected and 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 aimed for popular success. 
So if you look at him in his interviews about 2001, he'll, I mean, he, he gets a little touchy about the critics who panned it. And he'll say, well, yeah, but look at the box office business it's doing now. I mean, I, I've always found that a, a fascinating kind of, um, I don't know if contradiction is the right word, but it's an interesting aspect of Kubrick as a filmmaker that he makes these films that you want to watch again and again because they're so they're so well made and they're so deeply aesthetically satisfying. But by and large, he also was pretty successful at the box office. Um, I was curious enough about that that I looked up his net worth when he died. He, he had $20 million uh, when he died. Uh, so he'd been pretty successful. So to me, that's, that's one of the very interesting things about Kubrick. And maybe somebody like um, Spielberg or Martin Scorsese, uh, Popola, maybe they're sort of in that same category. Well, I think, I mean, I think that's true for, for a lot of artists is like, they want to create their art on their terms, but they also want people to mm -hmm. interact with it. I mean, I, I always find that interesting reading biographies of people like, you know, even someone like, uh, like James Joyce, who's writing mm -hmm. some of the more inaccessible literature of the 20th century, like, like he wanted people to read this and he wanted people like, like he, he wanted both critical um critical success but also wanted to wanted popular success even when they're creating things that um aren't targeted at that you know mm -hmm. or you know um one of the things that i found fascinating about this movie is i mean kubrick in lots of ways feels like such like an exacting auteur right like like this is um he has such a vision about what he wants and um you know and even even if that evolves as he's making it but this, this, the story of this film, the making of this film is so much about collaboration too, mm -hmm. that there are so many people that um, often for this film were sort of young and, and kind of new on the scene, but went on also to become these kind of masters in their, in their particular field. Uh, and the movie couldn't exist without him collaborating with, with really interesting people. So we talked about Arthur Clark, but um, there are a couple other, other, folks that that jump out to me um thinking about this movie one of them is uh Stuart Freeborn who's the the makeup artist on this film he mm -hmm. designs the um the the man ape uh you know makeup and 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 costume for that and it's so interesting because Kubrick keeps pushing him like like they, they go through all these different designs one of my favorite stories is that Kubrick's initial idea is well we could just have you know we could just have them be pretty human and he was trying to think of an actor that he thought like was was you know a, obviously a human but like had the kind of features that he was thinking of for early man and actually the person who his original idea of moon watcher was was robert shaw <laughs> <laughs> he said that you know but they, they went through different iterations but um but kubrick or, or excuse me once freeborn would come up with something kubrick would be like that's great but now can we get them to do this and can we get them to do this so all the stuff with when you think about all the things that the face that the 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 in the dawn of man that their faces are doing, all of those are individual challenges that Kubrick gave Freeborn. He said, "Well, okay, but now I want them to be able to open their mouth, and now I want them to be able to snarl, and I want them to be able to do this." And you know, and there are whole sequences that aren't in the movie where where they they you know you see the the little baby apes, which mm -hmm. are actually make up up chim uh, baby chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. They actually he he actually built lactating breasts for the women so those babies could nurse and that's not even in the film but kubrick kept saying but we have to have this and when they started to eat meat um freeborn had created a fake meat that wouldn't 
um, harm the makeup. And Kubrick said, no, we have to create makeup that allows them to eat real meat. And he just kept pushing him. But I also think like he gets the best out of him then too, right? Like they, they do this. Um, uh, and Freeborn goes on to, I mean, he is the, the person who creates Yoda for, um, mm-hmm. for the empire strikes back and, you know, becomes very famous in this. Um, Daniel Richter is the, the person who plays moon watcher, but also mm-hmm. creates all of the choreography for these things, uh, for the, um, the whole Donna man sequence. And it's this, the relationship between, uh, between those people, uh, Douglas Trumbull is, is maybe the most famous in terms of, uh, mm-hmm. he's, he's one of the, uh, the effects creators and coordinators on this and Kubrick just kept giving Trumbull new challenges and Trumbull as you said I mean he's one of these people who is inventing all of these new things Kubrick would just come up with challenges and say like okay well I want this how are we going to do it and then you know there was there's actually four effects uh photographic of effects uh coordinators on this film and they're just like these almost like um research teams coming up with technologies <laughs> to try to to try to do this so when you think about that stargate sequence there's a couple different effects there and mm. different people on that team invented effects and then they it kind of pieces together in that so i think like the collaborative nature of that is really interesting and at the same time kubrick burns a lot of bridges with these people too well <laughs> yeah that's very that's very typical of kubrick i was um i was thinking about I can only think of two actors that that worked with Kubrick more than once, um, Sterling Hayden and and Peter Sellers. Um, Malcolm McDowell never forgave Kubrick for the way he abused him on uh, on Clockwork Orange. And some people blamed Kubrick for uh, Nicole Kidman and and Tom Cruise getting divorced after making Eyes Wide Shut with him. But he did did continue to work with John Alcott, as I recall. Um, there were two cinematographers. Jeffrey Unsworth was the, had to leave because the production went on for so long. But he worked with Jeffrey Unsworth. Uh, with Jeffrey Unsworth on, um, they had a system of they used Polaroid snapshots to check their color and lighting schemes. And of course, this is the day before um, video. So he also used a closed circuit TV to uh, basically to see a live broadcast of what was happening as they were filming. Interesting enough, Jerry Lewis also did that of all people. But then uh, he he, uh, he worked on with John Al- John Alcott and, and a few other films as well. But you're right, um, Kubrick had a way of um, pushing people, and as you pointed out, sometimes pushing them to really great achievements, but also kind of burning people out. And it's like that's we just can't can't do that again. It's just too much. And that was the way Kubrick was. He was so incredibly intense himself that he just drove people the way he drove himself. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's one of the controversies of this film is this is the one film for which Stanley Kubrick received an Oscar and it was for for mm-hmm. visual effects and um, if you watch the credits there is a title card that says uh, special photographic effects designed and directed by Stanley Kubrick and then yeah. the next card is the four effects uh, effects coordinators uh, and that title card of uh, designed and directed by was held secret from everybody until until the very end. So like people like Trumbull didn't know that they weren't getting that credit. Yeah, and um, and it took about there's about ten years where they didn't talk to each other. Now by the end of his life, Trumbull was like you know talked about how much he loved and dearly missed Stanley Kubrick. But 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 I mean there was this sense that like Trumbull is kind of this wunderkind you know that Kubrick brings up, but also kind of cheats him out of of an opportunity to to get the recognition for this and that happens you know I, I 
Kubrick and Clark have very, there's a lot, I mean, there's way too much to get into about sort of that relationship. Kubrick delays the release of the book until, but at, at ultimately in all these things, it's like, but he's kind of right. Like it's kind of right how this thing worked out and it did launch these people into things. So it's uh it's kind of fascinating with that. Um, to get into this film a little bit, because we're, we're talking a lot about production, but but this is actually a film to watch, too. Um, on a broad scale, what would you say this movie's about? Like, what are the themes or ideas that are at the core of this? Well, I think one of the things the movie is about, which is typical of Kubrick, is um, what is the nature of humanity, right? I think it's, a, I think it's an invasion, investigation into what it means to be a human being, uh, what does it mean for humanity to progress? Uh, is humanity actually capable of progressing, of changing? Um, what's our relation? What's the relationship between humanity and machines in, in, in particular or invent, inventiveness in general? Uh, so, I, and yeah, so I think those are, those are three of the themes I would point to. Wow, you just you it's like you're reading from my notes when I ask the question and wrote answer. I mean, that's it one, it's interesting to think about, especially like the relationship between humanity and machines and what does it mean to be a human? And I would also say the human relationship to violence. Now, this movie is not other than the dawn of man, is not a violent movie, but there is violence all around it when you think about um uh you know the 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 in the dawn of man the development of tools quickly becomes the development of weapons right um you know and 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 the book stretches this out a little bit more um but then you know the the famous match cut where the bone is spinning in the air and then it becomes the you know all of a sudden we're we're up in space in t- in the year 2001 um those ships that match cut are actually not ships they're Suppose they're supposedly they're nuclear weapons, and if we you look closely, you can see the flags of different countries on those. So mm-hmm. it's this idea that you know this technology is is analogous to this. I mean, like like weapons or weapons. So and then we have Hal, um, you know, using violence. You have Dave killing Hal. Like like you have all of these these sort of different relationships, and even the Star Child comes at the end. And um, this is something he changed from the book because he didn't want an ending that felt too much like strange love. The star child in the book comes and destroys that ring of nuclear weapons around the world, mm-hmm. um, uh, which changes the you know potential way you think about that. But he thought it would always come off like he was destroying the world. And that mm-hmm. was not the idea that he wanted to visually convey. But if you think about strange love and you think about um, a clockwork orange, which which this is the meat in that sandwich. Those movies are very much about humans' relationship to technology, humans' relationship to violence. What does it mean to be human? Um, so in some ways, they're three very different movies, but at the same time, thematically, it's like he is definitely spinning on a particular issue in the late 60s and early 70s. Well, that's one of the things I, I appreciate about um, Kubrick as an auteur, because in a sense, he he never made the same film twice. I mean, he, I mean, he goes from this, you said, to Clockwork Orange, and he goes to Barry Lyndon. Uh, that John Alcott also uh, was a cinematographer and won an Academy Award for. Goes to The Shining, which John Alcott also shot. You know, and so if you if you just put those movies next to each other and said to somebody, you know, the same person directed these and he's an auteur, you would say, well, what? And I think that it goes back to um, it goes back to the inquiry into the nature of humanity, and especially, um, I, I guess I would focus especially on how Kubrick is thinking about the idea of. How do you reconcile intellect and will and rationality with much more primal urges? 
You know, in Strange Love, it's not only violence, it's also sex. That's not really a theme here in 2001. But think about one of the one of the other themes in human relationship to um, to machines is can machines eliminate the cost of human error? So, of course, in Strange Love, that's the whole point. They build the doomsday machine so human error cannot enter into it. And guess what? Jack D. Ripper enters into it. Here, they have Hal, right, who's supposed to be flawless, but Hal's been created by human beings, and Hal makes the mistake. So that's the other thing that Kubrick is really concerned about or investigating. Like, people try to build a world. They think maybe they could build a world that is, in some respects, flawless and perfect, and that's just not possible because of the nature of humanity. So is the star child a promise of a reborn humanity that doesn't have any of these flaws? If, if it doesn't have those flaws, is it still humanity? Um, those are the questions he's, he's raising. Well, let's, let's talk about how, because that was our inroads into talking about this, I think, relative to her. Um, what do you make of what Hal is up to? And, and, I was talking my so the, I continued the 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 cycle of showing this to children too early. I showed this to my kids and my daughter hated this movie when she first watched it. And then we watched it again last summer and she appreciates it more and I think, you know, 10 years from now it'll be one of her favorite movies is my guess because that's how this is supposed to work. But I got her hooked a little bit more this week when I was talking with her about Hal and I started to raise some questions. It's like does Hal make a mistake? Is Hal doing something on purpose is he testing the 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 crew because it's interesting right before he you know has that moment where he's talking he's talking with bowman and then he's like wait a minute wait a minute and then he reveals that this unit is going to fail he's asking bowman about you know do you have any wavering in this mission do you have any worries about it and it's like so and and so so i'm sort of as i was watching it i was thinking is how does Hal have these insecurities about the mission or does he know that these would be the kind of insecurities a human might have? So he's starting to test Bowman and is the, the whole thing with the failing unit, a test about how much do they trust him? How much can he trust them? Like, like is in your mind is Hal? does he actually make a mistake or is he, has he evolved to the, to the point of something like her, has he evolved to a point where he is, um, wondering about if um if these human beings are going to mess up the mission because hal seems very committed to the mission mm -hmm. well it seems as though clark and kubrick have different views of what happens to hal it seems as though clark and i haven't read the novel so you can correct me if i got this wrong but it seems as though clark thinks that what happens to hal happens because hal can't deal with the conflict between misleading the astronauts or lying to the astronauts and actually and actually being truthful. Mm -hmm. Ubrick says what I always assumed happened, and that is that Hal has made a mistake. Uh, the fact that his twin uh, on Earth has not made the same mistake suggests that something actually has gone wrong uh, in Hal, and I think that that's happened because Hal has been programmed by human beings. And Kubrick's interpretation, which I also think is how I interpret it is that Hal can't deal with the fact that he's made a mistake. He doesn't, he doesn't know how to reconcile that with his identity. So I think that when, so I, I think that, yes, Hal, I, I don't think that Hal pretends that the unit is going to fail in order to test Bowman. I think he, I think he truly has made a mistake. And I think it's part of Kubrick's message that a flawed human being cannot create a flawless computer.
Well, and it's interesting because if you in the BBC interview, that's one of the things that he mentions about that that the reporter mentions about Hal is like, oh, I I detect almost a note of pride in Hal mm-hmm. about his perfection. And and what would what would a mistake do to somebody who who has where that is that's functionally Hal's the cornerstone of Hal's identity is his perfection. Yes. And so 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 if he shows himself to be imperfect, then what is he? Which is the most human thing, you know. If you think about any, um, you know, think about a you know a, a student who has a four GPA and gets a B on a paper, mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. how much that can shatter their understanding of selfhood and like that's kind of what we're seeing Hal do yeah exactly yeah and 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 to make a machine to to uh mimic or develop like a human is maybe the flaw it's like well why would you want something that had you know that that replicated humanity because replicating humanity replicates the inherent flaws in humanity right well and it's that theme which we see engaged with the star child as well it's that theme of can humanity transcend itself? You know, can, kind of, can humanity lift itself up by its own bootstraps, bootstraps to become more than what it seems to be? And of course, one of the answers of the film is no, humanity can't do that. That's why we need a monolith. Um, that's what the monolith does. And Clark goes into a lot more explanation about how the monolith works. But it's the it's the monolith, it's, an, it's this external force that has the ability to uh, to trans potentially transform humanity, and it's interesting because Kubrick is not a religious person in any kind of a orthodox sense, but he is a person interested in speculating about what what it, what what it might mean for there to be a god or beings that exist on a higher plane than we do. So it's kind of an evolutionary view of what might have ultimately become. Um, these beings who actually don't need matter to exist, which kind of reminds us of what happens at the end of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somehow they're coming back to help us get to that higher stage of evolution. Right. And, th- and, th- and that could be a positive or a negative. There's a, a famous uh, Arthur Clarke line of like, it's based, I think it's um, two possibilities exist, either that there is intelligent life beyond this, this world or there isn't. And both of them are equally terrifying. <laughs> That's right. You know, um, <laughs> Uh, one of the things that I thought about to go back to another film we watched a long time ago that talks about AI, uh, it was Werner Herzog's Lo and Behold. Oh yeah, because uh, yeah. he starts to get into AI there, and there's it's 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 interesting thinking about who is who's expressing this idea. Um, but it's Elon Musk in that movie hmm. talks about the idea of, and this is where I'm thinking about like like Hal thinking about the mission as the number one. Like, like that is his number one objective, right? Um, and it's it's why he makes pretend. I mean, that and and maybe this sort of um, sense of how do I cover up for my mistake? Uh, but but Elon Musk in that movie talks about like if you created a an AI to play the stock market and make money, right? And that AI had the ability to do things that it's like the AI would, you know, it would be natural for the AI eventually to say, well, I'm going to invest in sort of stocks for defense type things. And then I'm going to start a war because that will make, you know, and it's sort of like, like taking out this human element because the objective is the, is the thing to focus in on. And I was thinking about Hal as he kills pool, as he um, kills the other, I mean, it's such a haunting scene when he kills the the guys in cryo sleep because they already are in what looked like sarcophagi. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you just see them shut that down and you just keep cutting back to Hal's eye 
um and and Hal becomes this like cold-blooded killer at this point um but it made me think of Elon Musk talking about like what would AI do if you programmed it with a sole objective and Hal sort of has that sole objective to a certain degree as well and Elon Musk evidently uh I didn't see this article my wife told me about it. Elon Musk evidently has recently said that we need to be careful about the direction we're going with AI. We need to kind of put the brakes on it before we, so we have to actually, actually figure out where, we're, where we are going. Um, one thing I should say about Hal, uh, Hal's eye, the, uh, the project was originally titled Journey to the Stars. Uh, and, then, uh, and then Kubrick gave it this uh, title with the, with the reference to the Odyssey uh, in, the, in the subtitle. And how is the Cyclops? Mm-hmm. Uh, and like the Cyclops, he becomes kind of bloodthirsty by the end. Mm-hmm. Well, and and actually, it, if you read nothing else of the Michael Benson book, the introduction is all about Homer's Odyssey, Joyce's Ulysses, and 2001: A Space Odyssey, and how they actually there there's because he talks about even if you think about even the name of um, Dave's last name is Bowman. Mm-hmm. And, and Odysseus mm-hmm. famously, like one of the things mm-hmm. that the suitors have to do is pull back the bow of mm-hmm. of of Odysseus. And, um, you know, and it, it's also very Joseph Campbelly, you know, depending on how you read that end, like the, the, the like you go off mm-hmm. into the, you know, into the unknown and come back with some great boon. I mean, that's Hero with a Thousand Faces and like the star child returning to Earth has this sort of um, Campbell-esque feel and, and, and definitely in the the 50s and 60s kubrick was reading joseph campbell and thinking about those things so that so there is this sort of um mythic like touching into the 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 vast human myth um you know within this film so it's no mistake that this is an odyssey <laughs> exactly um i want to talk about music in this movie <laughs> because uh, music and sound in this movie i should say um because this, this, I mean, Kubrick famously he he uh, commissions a score for this movie, which he then gets rid of and doesn't use any of, and instead uses these um, pieces of classical music. So, uh, "Thus Spake Zarathustra" from Richard Strauss, "Blue Danube" um, from Johann Strauss, and then I actually think the Ligeti pieces are mm. the best pieces. And I mean, they're they're the least iconic, you know, in terms of like. If you've never seen this movie, you know thus spake thus spake there there Zarathustra because you've seen it used and parodied, and it's it and it's such a perfect use of these things. And there's something comic almost about Blue Danube when it plays yeah. as you're watching these spaceships. But the Leggetti stuff, like on the at the Tycho base when they're um uh the Tycho site where they're going to the monolith, um it's it is the most terrifying, terrifying music. And he also uses Ligeti again late, later in The Shining and in Eyes Wide Shut in very key moments in those movies as well. Yeah, it was interesting to me that he did commission a score because I don't, I, I couldn't think of any Kubrick film that had a commissioned score because he almost always uses existing uh, classical music. I mean, the, the, the use to which he puts Beethoven in Clockwork Orange is, is pretty, uh, pretty notorious. Yeah, so I, um, yeah, I, I, I think that that's that's back to this notion of the film working viscerally, mm-hmm. and and I think that each of those pieces, um, I mean, I don't know, once you've seen the film and you get the drums for the speak there is Zarathustra, it just seems like it was just made to to work that way. But yeah, it just it, it feels just, like he commissioned like, it outside of time. Somehow. Yeah, yeah, I just, I mean, it just seems like there is such an incredible 
harmony of the music and the visuals. It just, I, I don't see how he could have thought that was just sort of like filler music. It just seemed until he got the score, it just seems like that was exactly the right, the right kind of music. And, and, and I guess because, um, I don't know how to explain this. It's not, it's not music that serves an explicitly narrative function. Mm -hmm. You know, so, sometimes you feel like the music is also kind of telling a story. Um, it's more that it has that, um, it, it's more that it enhances that mood. There's almost, okay, maybe it's a, a weird way to think about it, but it's almost as something onomatopoeic about the way the mm -hmm. music chimes with the visual. So when the sun rises and you get the horns in Zarathustra, it's like you're getting, the, the music is giving you an aural representation of what you're looking at visually. And in fact, I was just reading recently about, there has been this long tradition of, um, of correlating da data from space with actual musical notes. Hmm. Like, like taking taking records of of space transmissions and plotting those as music, and then astronomers listening to it, and they're actually able to see or hear patterns that they ne can't necessarily see or hear when they're looking at the raw data. So, so to me, that's what he's doing. He's like aligning the physical movement with the movement of of the music. And so that you know, the Blue Danube. It's yes. It, it's like the uh, the Pan Am craft is kind of having this dance through the through the cosmos. So to me, that's one of the reasons why the music works so well. Well, and it's interesting with Blue Danube. He was um, the the because of the effects, things needed to move at a certain rate because of the star the starlight in the background, so it wouldn't look so it would look correct. And Kubrick just identified that oh the, the the way this is moving is a waltz, and he started to play music under it. And Blue Danube was just a, a temp track yeah. because it's like well this matches it, and then it just became this yeah it, you know it it just became like how could it be anything other you know other than that? Um, I have a couple other things, but is there anything you want to make sure we talk about as we're getting toward the to the yeah yeah um, you, you said music and sound. I want to talk about sound. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, I want to talk about um, the incredible sound of that heavy breathing uh, as, as Dave is going out to do the rescue mission. And then, the, the and this, made, this took me all the way back to M, um, the complete silence, which is like there's no soundtrack at all. And, you know, and, and so, so you get the visual of, you know, Dave uh, shooting through that, uh, that, that uh, hatch but mm -hmm. there's no accompanying sound at all. So you really feel like he's kind of literally taking you into, into space. Yeah. Well, and, and, and when, when pool dies, cause when, when pool goes out, this, uh, when pool goes out, cause he's um, uh, you hear the breathing and then when he dies, it goes utterly silent. And that's one of the things that, that they talked about in Benson's book is like the rules of film are even when you don't have anything, you have, ambient room sound but they dropped everything out and it and it leaves that that vision of of pool floating in space as like the loneliest thing you've ever seen <laughs> you know because 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 he literally is in nothing um yeah little fun fact about the about the breathing do you know who's breathing that is no that is stanley kubrick all right <laughs> he went into the studio and put he went into the studio put on the helmet and uh and they recorded him for about a half an hour breathing so 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 you're actually hearing stanley there well the other the, the other director of the time who also used silence is not so a name that you would connect with kubrick and that is a uh, godard good oh, sure. silence like that so um 
I will have one other weird coincidence this week. So my my daughter for her um, English class is reading Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five. Mm. So I, so she was talking about it. So I went back and reread it uh, one morning this week, and uh, I thought it was so interesting because this that book comes out in 1969, so the year after mm. this, and they both involve humans going and ending up in alien zoos where the aliens try to create a you know some sense of what life and what a what a what a habitat would be like for a human being and i thought well that's really interesting that in two years we get two major works that are playing with that very idea yeah (laughs) it's it's in it's in the air i guess yeah well and and what's, what's also interesting about in terms of like the idea of extraterrestrial life or you know the the space race being in the air one of the other interesting things that kubrick does as he's making this movie is he takes out a huge insurance policy at lloyd's of london in case real life spoils the movie like on the off chance that like because we're starting to meddle in space that aliens come to earth he like he has an insurance (laughs) policy because he's like my movie doesn't make sense if aliens show up. So, um, so he actually he actually had an insurance policy specifically for that. Well, I mean, Kubrick was intensely interested in UFOs, and he did not rule out the possibility that that was actually extra extraterrestrial life uh, vis- visiting us. Yeah, this whole thing about aliens uh, and, and taking you know, human beings away. There was an episode about the same time of um, uh, of, of Rod Serling's uh, show, Twilight Zone. Um, where aliens come to Earth and take people away, but in this case, it's to eat them. Um, mm-hmm. They have a they have a huge book that gets translated as "To Serve Man," and everybody says, "Oh, what a noble title!" And then they realize it's a cookbook. So. Uh, anything else you want to talk about before? Yeah, we... I just that's why one other thing about visuals, and that is the uh, the recurring use of red as a motif. Mm. Uh, red, of course, is associated with Hal's eye, but there's a lot of red. There's red chairs in the Earthlight Lounge cabin of the moon shuttle is is red um when when the moon when the shuttle on the moon comes to land in its bay it looks like first of all it looks like a giant head mm-hmm. uh and it's and the the eva pod uh is it, a red suit um and when when it's really weird the the way he's got the helmet designed it looks like the head of a frog uh he's got this little uh, kind of eye things at the top and then of course when um when dave is inside hal's brain uh, that's that's all red, and so red, you know, tr- associated both with blood, but also with anger and, uh, and and ire. So I thought that you know we could talk more about just kind of the various visual motifs that he creates, and I think the domination of red is one of them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's we could talk for another two hours about this movie and and more. Uh, two two last things that I I found interesting um, when Dave is is starting to um, shut down Hal. Uh, you see how pleading with Dave pleading mm-hmm. for his life. And this yeah. made me think of the last movie project that Kubrick worked on AI. There is the, there is a scene where they talk about do AI plead for their life when they're about mm-hmm. to be killed at the flesh fair. So like mm-hmm. that idea comes circles back there. Last thing is something I heard on a podcast about this. And it's, I, I found this really interesting. Like when you think about the, at the dawn of man, the, uh, the, 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 the early man, are fighting over a watering hole, right? Around a watering hole. They're so showing like shows of dominance to each other, things like that. And uh, uh, Jordan Hoffman brought this up on the, the Blank Check podcast, but that when you get to the space station, 
and you see the the uh, you see Floyd and the Russians, right? And they're also kind of posturing, and there's little like power plays there about what information is and isn't going to come. That they're basically at a bar, so a new watering <laughs> hole. So so there is sort of this idea that just like the bone and the and the weapons are a match cut. There is also this match cut of we're still fighting fighting around a watering hole. And I thought that was a really cool. I, that had never occurred to me, but that's definitely what's going on there. Yeah, excellent. All right, Barrett, uh, what do you have for us for next week? Well, we're going to continue with our theme of uh, top ten for our lists, and uh, one of the one that was on my top ten was uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker, which um, is also one of Tarkovsky's responses to two thousand one. Um, Solaris, uh, which he made in 71, is a, is a more direct response because that's set in space as well. But Stalker is also, um, in a sense, I don't want to call it his refutation of, of Kubrick, but he was very unhappy with how Kubrick did science fiction. And so Stalker is, um, is his response. It's set on Earth, but it's got a lot of sci-fi stuff going on. And I just have to say that uh, I can't think of two filmmakers more different than Kubrick and Tarkovsky. Uh, I love them both. Uh, and Dave Thompson, the author of the uh, autobiograph, the, the biographical dictionary of film, who is, if nothing else, a contrarian critic, um, with whom I agree about half the time at that, he dislikes both Kubrick and Tarkovsky intensely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love them both. So, uh, but I think 2001 is a good preparation for Stalker because Stalker is also a slow film. Uh, Tarkovsky is seen as an early adopter of slow cinema. So if viewers are kind of, listeners are kind of uh, accustomed to a different rhythm, that's good as you prepare for Stalker. Oh, I'm so excited about this. This will be my third Tarkovsky film, and I'm I'm kind of falling in love with him. So I'm very excited for this. And I'm also interested, I, I'm interested in learning more about why he didn't like 2001 and, and sort of thinking about thinking about his kind of film responses to that idea. So I'm very excited for this. Barrett, Thank you so much for uh, for having us watch this film this week uh, and for having this conversation. I would say if you if you're into 2001, the Michael Benson book is definitely definitely worth uh, worth the read. Um, there's so much stuff we didn't talk about that that I just find so fascinating. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Stalker in the video store. <laughs>